Good morning to those who are joining us online. Um, honored that you could even connect with us. Honored that we could all connect together in this moment. Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive right into the text. Father, uh, this is an opportunity that we have to encounter you. Um, the words that we sing are declarations, and they're also <laughs> requests. Um, so we're not just declaring truth about you, to each other, to our own selves, but we're also making requests from you. God, that we would, we would sing, give us faith, that we would acknowledge that faith itself is a gift, and that we would ask that you in your kindness and your generosity would give us that gift that would just burrow into our souls even in the midst of tremendous frailty and weakness, faith could thrive and flourish. That's what we sung, and that's what we asked for. We declared that you loved our whole heart. Every aspect of who we are, you saw, you see currently, and you do not step away. You step towards us in love to produce freedom. Look where our chains are now. It's a song of victory. God, I pray that as we've encountered you through the praises of your name, that we would likewise encounter you through the preaching of your word, that your word would come alive for us and move us to sing and declare and make bold requests and live bold lives that tell a story of your greatness. Clarity is what we're after, and we know transformation is possible, so spirit of God consuming fire, Bring it to be. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in Colossians. I didn't really last in this car again in first service. I lasted all of 10 seconds. And I thought I was going to last longer. I really did. Because, you know, sometimes you put the cardigan on, uh, people would, like, respond to you differently. Oh, he's a little bit more professional. And then they don't see the tattoos, so they don't judge you, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, you know, it's just hot. And so, amen, if you're watching online, you didn't know that it's hot in here, but there's something different about being in a room. Praise God. Housekeeping, um, before we dive into uh, the text, um, every time that we get out here, every, every single time, whoever is preaching, whether it's a pastor here or somebody that we trust and we've empowered, every single time we get up here, the goal is to unfold the greatness of who God is and what God is doing, what it means for us, what it means for all of life everywhere. That is the end game. And we want to do that in ways that are compelling, allowing the word of God to speak for itself and clear where we're able to take what is said and then apply it, reason with it, wrestle with it, and then move forward in life well. And that's the aim, precision and clarity. So we want to do some housekeeping things. Last week, we talked about the will of God, and there was a lot of like, great feedback. And people were like, man, I needed that message. Praise God. But there was a part in there that could have created some confusion or lack of clarity. And sometimes a lack of clarity is created not by what's said, but by what's not said, 
and then by what may or may not be emphasized. So I just want to clear up some stuff um, for us specifically regarding the Holy Spirit and speaking in the lives of people. Now, we are going to have room for that um, sometime um, during this series, but also this is just the nature of the church. We're always going to have these conversations, but I do want to clear it up right now. The Holy Spirit speaks decisively, clearly, and excellently through the word of God. That is the primary environment where we are meant to hear from God's spirit. However, to emphasize that is not to neglect the reality that God moves as he pleases freely. And there are times where God speaks through sensing and impressions within our hearts and our souls, and it's hard to make sense of that. But we are called to make sense of that through his word. And so if there's moments where God is speaking to you, like, and you just sense something in your heart, you're like, man, I just feel like God is saying something. Like, I have a word for the Lord. That is the perfect opportunity to lean into courage and humility and to bring it to the word as you bring it to other people. Let me be clear. We will not get up here unless we feel like we have a word from the Lord. Unless in our time of prayer and prep and wrestling and laboring, on your behalf to honor God through his word, if we don't feel like God speaks, we're not getting up here. Because that is just my thoughts and my reasons and my hobby horses, and there's a lot of those. But you don't want to hear from me. You want to encounter God. Which is why we root every single thing that we say in God's words, even if it's like just this move in my heart. And let me tell you, I feel like I have a word for the Lord. And it's to produce greater transformation and liberation around the way we understand the grace of God. God's favor, unearned, to whoever wants it. And like divine power and access tethered to the God who is that when we understand that, when we embrace that, when we rest in that, when we live out of that space, there is transformation and liberation. There's freedom. Like I said, every single time that we get up here is to push us to that aim. But the word is rooted in this glorious passage that we get to read and examine together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through verse 9. At the center of this passage is this statement, this declaration that is worth wrestling with and reinforces the weightiness of who God is and what God is doing. It's the gospel. But around it are some significant statements that Paul is making. This is why we say Colossians is condensed greatness. You just can't, I mean, it's like every other verse, there's just this significant assertion with tremendous implications, and where we are today has all of that. So lest, lest I get lost in just the richness of the text, let me give you the flow of our time and the flow of our text. There are some things that are noteworthy, and we're going to take note of them. 
that's going to be the, the first part of our time. It's just, man, there's some noteworthy things that are worth actually taking note of. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. But then we're going to dive deeper into understanding and embracing and subsequently applying what Paul identifies as the word of truth, the gospel. And then we're going to close with this conclusion that is just so subversive. It's a statement that's, and so that'd be at the flow of our time. Some noteworthy stuff that we're going to look at. Going deeper into understanding this word of truth, the gospel, and then closing with this subversive, stunning, significant statement that Paul makes. Y'all still here? Online, you here? We good? All right, let's read together. Man, got the rag out. I ain't even started preaching yet. Praise God. Um, well, preaching, preaching, that's a colloquial. Verse 3 reads like this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Grab the most neon pink lighter that you could find like the most neon pink highlighter and just like mark through that. The love that you have for all the saints, it's weighty. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Take the most greenest highlighter you have and underline everything we just read. Verses 6. Verse 7. This is also subversive, but this is next week. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. These are some of the most humbling, enriching passages in the entire Bible. I don't say that to embellish. I don't say that to exaggerate. What we just read are some of the most humbling, piercing, enriching passages in the entire Bible. We are invited into Paul's soul. We have a window, like a front seat view of what's happening in Paul's heart. And what we have just witnessed are words that are actually prayers. We are witnessing prayer. Got to take note of it. Prayer is communication with God. It's a two-way street. It's both speaking and listening. That's prayer. Its significance can never be lost on us. Prayer is to Christianity what breathing is to living. You don't breathe, you die. If you've ever been in a space where you're just catching your breath, it does not feel good. A lot of friends with asthma, 
lot of friends who've wrestled through this COVID pandemic. It does not feel good. And what the scriptures go through great lengths to paint for all of us is that's how prayer works itself out in Christianity. You don't pray, you die as a Christian. If we don't communicate with him, we don't listen, we don't talk. Prayer is to Christianity what breathing is to living. There's more noteworthy here regarding prayer. Every kid tattletales. If you have young kids, like they're under the age of seven, they're still tattletelling. It hasn't evolved into gossip and slander. That's what, you know, teenagers and adults do. It's like it's built into us. But it's the, it's the seeds of it. We're in that space. We just have a conversation. We're like, are you telling us to get them in trouble? Or are you telling us to prevent trouble? Which one? Because if it's to get them in trouble, you go figure that out. But it's to prevent trouble, let's have a great conversation. But everybody tattletales, we know what tattletelling is, it's snitching. And we know the story, snitches get stitches. Prayer snitches on the soul. That's why it's humbling. It tells the truth that we're often afraid to confront. And underneath this, rich, humbling state. We haven't ceased praying for you. Is a piercing question. Who are you praying for? Right now. Who are you praying for? Yes, we go to God. God, I, I need help in this area. I'm wrestling with this area. Yes, we go to God. We just praise him for his goodness. But man, are you going to God on behalf of other people? And what's crazy is Paul hasn't even seen these people face to face. That there's something in his heart that says, I want your growth and maturity to take place. I want you to flourish. So I'm going to pray for you. I had a conversation with Will earlier this week, and we were talking about, he actually mentioned this. Was, I thought it was super profound. He was like, immaturity is stealthy. It's stealth. But man, it's lethal. We can't always see it. Sometimes because of blind spots, but it kills us from the inside out. It's lethal. Paul gets that. And he's like, man, immaturity in the faith will destroy your life. I am going to pray for your progress and your growth and your flourishing. Who are you praying for? Tied to that question is another one. Do you believe somebody is praying for you? By name. Do you matter to somebody that much where they're actually praying for you? Humbling. There's more, there's, there's more noteworthy stuff here, though. Notice what's grabbing his attention from a prison cell in chains. What's causing him to say, man, I need to thank God. I need to get up and do a dance. You know, pray. I, need to, I need to praise God for something. Notice what's grabbing his attention. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. The sincerity of your faith, what is grabbing my attention, is not miraculous healing. What is grabbing my attention is not the stuff that we would say is overtly demonstrative. And if we saw it now, we would be like, of course God is in their midst. 
Like if I like had like one leg and then the other leg just started, like, you'd be like, yes, yeah, I need to go to that church. Jesus must be. What is grabbing his attention, preoccupying his mind as he's in prison is their love for other Christians. There's weight here. There's a lot of ways you could talk about love. You could talk about love more from a family standpoint. The word for that often is phileo, friendship, family, a familial type of love. You could talk it from like a, a romantic standpoint. Girl, when the, the moon reflects on your eyes, something happens in my soul. That was for you, I was just looking at it. Praise God. Eros, like erotic, romantic, or agape, this sincere, affection, sacrificial situation. And what he's saying here, he's saying your love is, your agape for other Christians. In other words, you love other Christians the way Jesus loves you. Guys, there are so many things that inform how we treat other people. Some of that is good, some of it is neutral, and some of it is bad. Currently, there's a lot of social, political, cultural conversations that are shaping relationships. You land on a particular like, side of the aisle and it is going to inform how you interact with another person. Preferences, we all have them. And what he is saying is a thing that is not just informing your interaction, but is defining it. It's God's love. And your lives are telling a tremendous story. What is the story your life is telling right now? But this is a church. This is a community. What is the story our lives together is telling? Is it this, that we love well? That we look at each other? And what is informing our interactions, what's defining it, is God's love for us and us pouring that out to one another. So much here. But these noteworthy dynamics, as beautiful and enriching as they are, and there's a lot of them, they revolve around, they flow out of what Paul says is the word of truth, the gospel. Guys, in, um, in life, Christianity particularly, there's a lot of like, room and spaces where we could agree to disagree. You prefer Dallas over Houston. You're wrong, but amen. We can just agree to disagree. You prefer Broward to Day County. God bless you. We want to plant churches out that way. That's because I'm moved, like, you know, I'm in, in Jesus' name. We get, there's a lot of places in life, even in Christianity. Man, we look at this, and some, some of us are like, man, I, I kind of like this, but this doesn't really feel like it's the best way we can connect to each other. I would prefer a different situation rather than gathering in an auditorium, I'd rather gather in a house. Get busy. That's beautiful. That's to be celebrated. People could agree to disagree there. And maturity, humility, and wisdom allows us to understand where we should agree to disagree. As it relates to the gospel, this is not one of those areas. We don't agree to disagree around the gospel because when we do that, lives are always damaged. What Paul is doing, 
76 times in the entire New Testament, the word gospel shows up. 60 of the 76, Paul uses it. It's Paul writing and he is consistently talking about the gospel. It comes from this word evangelion. It's not inherently Christian. It's a word Paul looked in the Greek Greek culture and he's like, what can I grab to describe and define the good news regarding the person of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, and the work of Jesus. What word can I use to describe that? The gospel. That's, that's, that's what that is. The gospel is the good news, the announcement, the proclamation of the good news regarding the person, claims, and work of Jesus. The gospel. Now, As the scriptures unfold the scope and the depth of the gospel, they really invite us to see it from two perspectives. Fact, you just work through the scriptures and you work through when the gospel shows up explicitly. And what we see is that the scriptures typically have two vantage points that they talk from. One vantage point is more narrow And another vantage point is more broad. So Matt Chandler, pastor out in Dallas, he's he's redeeming Dallas, all right? But, and Jared Wilson, also pastor, I mean, just brilliant mind together, they came up with this book that I think is one of the best books I've ever written in my life. Like, like I've just ever written, read in my life. It is so good that if you want it, no matter where you are, In your faith journey, you don't know Jesus and you're cool with it, but you're intrigued. You know Jesus, but you're struggling. You know Jesus and you're like, man, I'm actually ready to leave this Christianity thing. You know Jesus and you're celebrating. Wherever you are on the faith journey, this book is helpful and beautiful. It's called The Explicit Gospel. And if you want it, you can't afford it, email me. Moochie at the brookmiami.org. We can put that in the chat online. Email me and we'll get you a copy. Now, when I say you can't afford it, what I mean, if you're rocking some dunks, some boost, boost life, if you do, come on, that's a different conversation. It's like if you actually, you can't afford it, then holler at me. But don't, don't try to, you know, get over. That book is so transformative. So essentially, the way that they, the way that they categorize or articulated this broad way and this narrow way is as the gospel on the ground and then the gospel in the air. And each has a different emphasis where the gospel on the ground, it puts a microscope on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the invitation into life the message and the means of salvation. Where the gospel on the, in the air, it, it, it shines this microscope on the work of God through human history and his kingdom. Let's take a bit by bit, go into it. Let's start with the gospel on the ground. If we wanna have our attentions drawn to this glorious message and the means, there's really four things that help us understand the gospel from the vantage point of the ground. The first is God. Listen to me. The story of humanity begins with God, not us. The story of reality begins with God. That there is this great, majestic, 
God who exists and his fingerprints are everywhere. God is all-powerful, yet deeply personal and knowable God. And this all-powerful, deeply personal and truly knowable God enters into a unique relationship with humanity where we can know and enjoy and reflect his greatness forever. Nobody forced his hand to do it. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody blackmailed him. In freedom and kindness and generosity, God created. He showed off his greatness. And then he says, the crown of my creation is going to be humans. And I want a unique relationship with them where they're going to know me. They're going to enjoy me. And they're going to reflect me differently than everything else. God. But then we move to man. We do zoom into us. When you talk about humanity, what we have to come to grips with is humanity bears the image of God. As a result, it has unchangeable dignity and tremendous design. Humanity bears the image of God carrying unchangeable dignity and tremendous design, this matters. Because there's certain spaces that you enter into in this Christian world, and when people talk about humanity, they do it very deficiently. So we don't talk about ethnicity and how that's tied to our essential humanity. We don't talk about gender identity and how that's tied to our essential humanity, and the only time we talk about it is when we want to belittle people. And then when we want to talk about humanity, what is often the starting point is depravity. Oh, humans are broken. Something wrong with us. Yes. But when we come on the scene in the scriptures, when we come on the scene in human history, when we see our story collapse on the canvas of creation, what is said of us is blessed, made in the image of God dignity and design. So humanity in its truest form is nearly divine. We bear the image of God carrying unchangeable dignity and tremendous design, but we know that's not where the story stops or stays. Humanity also bears the weight of sin, bringing brokenness in all relationships with far-reaching consequences that this great God who created this glorious world for joy is resisted at every turn we resist we reject we suppress we alter all of us do it and the scriptures define that resistance that rejection that diminishing that altering that rewiring as sin but often when we think of sin, we, we primarily think of it as the breaking of a moral code or an established standard. And there's truth there. But the way the scriptures talk about sin, build that out more. The breaking of a moral code, the breaking of an established like standard, that's not inaccurate. It's just incomplete. When the scriptures talk about sin, it's more like the violation of relationship. 
So it's less like cheating on a test and more like cheating on your spouse. It hits different. It's breaking the very heart of God. Bringing consequences everywhere. And no one escapes it. You find me someone who has a perfect relationship with another human being. Even the best relationships have like residue of brokenness and sin. We disagree, we beef, even in the midst of beauty and love. But the consequences aren't just felt here and now, they're felt eventually. Every single human is immortal, nearly divine. We will live forever, all of us. But sin will cause us to live forever away from God. God sees that. He sees this situation. And he doesn't do what we do. When we see broken situations, our typical response is to stay away. I don't want to handle that. Somebody else will figure it out. But we have God, man, and then we have the next movement, Christ. God sees the situation, and Jesus steps into our situation with joy, love, grace, and truth. That he comes in on the pursuit to do something about the situation every single human finds themselves in. And what he does is that through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus repairs what's broken, provides liberation from the consequences, and invites anyone who desires to experience life forevermore. Because of joy, because of grace, Christ living for our good, dying for our sake, that we would have life publicly publicly one of the things I love about the scriptures is how they were written in plain view and the arguments that they make they're daring they're like yo this Jesus thing it didn't happen in a cave somewhere it didn't happen in some backwoods place where nobody has access all I saw it the empire of the known world at that time had a hand in it. It's public. Full view. This grotesque yet beautiful death. And such a public display and demonstration demands a response. Gospel on the ground. God, man, Christ, and response. The person claims and work of Jesus invokes a response from every one. It's like there was this tremendous car crash on I-95, and you stare at it. Some of us responded, we're like, man, this is going like, to get me late, and I'm already late, which means I'm early. Praise God for Miami time. And some of us are like, oh, my God, like, I wonder if they're okay. But there's multiple responses to the exact same event. Some of us hear everything that I've talked about today, everything that we talk about every day, and we're like, man, you know what? That actually doesn't really do it for me. I don't believe it. I agree, but I disagree. I don't believe we're going to live forever. 
I don't believe a loving God would do something like that. Some of us, we see that and we're like, man, I believe, but help me to believe because it's hard. Some of us, we see that and the response is humility to be floored, to be like, oh my God, why would anybody do that? Why would a free God sign up for heartache? Who does that? Why would Jesus enter into our situation knowing what it's going to cost them? Who does that? What does that say about me and how he sees me and how he values me? That he would go through those links, not for himself. Not because he's like, you know what, I have this great idea. I'm going to die today. This is going to be great. I am ready for somebody to break my body down and destroy me. It demands a response, but the response that God desires is faith. God's desired response is faith in who he is and what he's done for us, not working to earn what we can't or walking away from what we shouldn't. God's desired response is faith, faith in who he is and what he's done for us. Not working to earn what we can't or walking away from what we shouldn't. That's the gospel on the ground. It's beautiful. This message of redeeming love and access created for people who want to know God. But there's more not the only way the scriptures talk about the gospel. Again, this is the narrow message and means. But then there's a gospel in the air. Similarly, it has a fourfold way of understanding it. Whereas the gospel in the ground was God, man, Christ's response, the gospel in the air is creation, fall, reconciliation, consummation, creation. God designed a beautiful world filled with goodness and marked by wholeness. That is the original design of the world that we live in. That is just like, it just tells the story of how great God is. And it is whole. Things are as they should. Peace. That's right. It's beautiful. Creation exists to tell the story of God's greatness and produce meaningful experiences of delight. Noah asked me a question. Noah, dad, why, like, why do we have taste buds? Because God wants you to experience delight. Oh man, God is good. Yes, he is. You're welcome. Are you going to cook for me, Dad, so I can experience this delight? You slick. You slick. You got, you're too witty right now. I'm going to need you to act like you four again, but amen. Creation provides meaningful experiences of delight. But we know that's not where the story stops or stays because creation is abused and creation is often against us. Hurricanes. Natural disasters, heat storm. And it's because of sin. The sin of humanity affects all of creation. Have you ever heard the statement or the phrase, the fish rots from the head down? Have you ever heard that phrase? So I, 
I'm from, I'm from, again, from Houston, Texas. It's like the collision of country and city. And if you're from the country or you're a fisherman, you probably heard that phrase before. I heard it growing up, I was like, that's nasty. I don't really understand. But if you exist in the country space or you've existed in organizational leadership, you've probably heard that phrase. And now online or here, you've heard this phrase as well. And essentially what it captures is this idea that problems flow from the top down. That if you have leadership within an organization or within a situation and there's something wrong with you, it's going to show up in the organization that you're leading. Does that make sense? God gave mankind leadership over all of creation. Steward it. Build culture and beauty from this canvas that I've given you. And when humanity said no, all of creation was affected. Fall. The effects of sin aren't just personal or communal. They're cosmic and cultural, systemic and institutional. Because people build systems, right? People build institutions, right? And people are fallen, right? So the effects of fallen humanity go everywhere. In other words, the absence of wholeness and the distortion of God's greatness touches every square inch of life. That's fall. Story doesn't stop there, though. Reconciliation. Again, God sees the situation. He doesn't stay away. He doesn't step back. Rather, he steps in. And Jesus' work on the cross is the center of God's plan to restore all of creation. That, that life, death, burial, resurrection dynamic that is chiefly emphasized in the gospel on the ground has cosmic implications. The blood of Christ brings beauty, not just to individual lives, but to communities and culture. Cannot be contained. Spreads from individuals to cultures, from cities to the cosmos. Reconciliation and Jesus's people, the church, is the primary vehicle to accomplish that plan. How is God going to reconcile this world? You. The world is transformed by God through you. God through us. And one day it will be complete consummation. One day, all that is broken will be made whole and all that is wrong will be made right. The effects of sin will be erased and what is left is a declaration, all things new. This is hope. That where things are now, they don't have to stay that way, and they won't stay that way. That God sees all of this, and he's saying, every single thing that's broken, I'm going to deal with it, and I'm going to mend it, I'm going to make it whole, I'm going to bring peace. And every wrong that exists, even if it seems like people escape from justice, and they escape from the eyes of what is true, every wrong that exists, will be made right. This is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. That's what Jesus declares. It'll be righted. And all that's left 
is the erasing of sin and its effects. No death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more struggle, just newness. This is the gospel message, the gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. Both are necessary, both are complementary. I travel. Don't travel as much anymore just because we're in the middle of a global pandemic and there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on, right? However, when you go in the air, you get a different perspective of what's going on on the ground, yes? It would be weird to diminish the perspective of the ground just because I'm in the air. And vice versa. They complement each other. But you can't live in the air forever. And if you linger on the ground, your perspective is altered, it's limited. If we linger with the gospel on the ground too much, never really dealing with it from this new perspective up here, what happens is often we become individualistic and self-centered. We become detached from what God is doing all around us in human history and how we're connected to a larger work that is still actively taking place. And if we stay in the air too long and we never come on the ground, we actually don't tell people, judgment is coming. That's it, that's not, like it's coming. There is eternity. And we'll settle for cultural transformation that's divorced from Christianity. And there's churches that lean one way. Some of them lean unduly to one side and some of them are gospel light. They don't even have this. So it's raindrops and roses and whiskers on kittens and it's cotton candy. And let me give you five steps to have a better life. Let me show you how you could clean up what's going on to you so you can find this boo in Miami. Like it's just, and let me mobilize you to now go tackle this need that's gonna exist beyond you, which is good. But it's not grace. God's power and love at work on our behalf because we can't accomplish it. And what I've just been just sitting with this week is how this really does demand a response, that we should respond, receive, believe, and apply it every single day till the day that we die. So right now, where do you need to receive, believe, and or apply the gospel? If you don't know Jesus and you've just been engaging with us, man, we love you. God loves you more than we could ever love you. And you don't have to have it all figured out to believe. Knowing everything isn't a prerequisite for faith. Understanding everything isn't a prerequisite for faith. Faith is simply taking who God is and what God says as true. And then it explores. And if that's what you want to do, welcome to the family. Let's go change the world together. Some of us, we have been just crushed in this last week with just insecurity and just feeling like we're not cared, cared about, we're not thought through, and you need to hear from me that even when people do that, there is a God who says you are fully known and fully loved. You are thought through. You are cared for. You matter. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, hope is the attitude of anticipation and the confidence to continue to endure. 
And some of us have allowed despair to set in, and we don't know what it looks like to hope again. And if the gospel is true, on the ground and in the air, hope is always alive and hope is always available. The future in front of us will always be more excellent than the past behind us. That's what the gospel teaches us. Last bit. Then I'm going to close. I knew I wasn't going to sweat it. Praise God. question I've been posing to some people is a question I've been regularly posing to myself, and it's this. Does God get a say? Does God get a say? If the gospel is true, then God should get a say. We're in an interesting space right now where everybody is on a journey, but we're all seeking. We're not all seeking well. I just, just to be honest, we're not all seeking well. And my, my background before, before stepping into the professional pastoral space was anthropology. Like, I'm a researcher. I love cultures. I love, like, doing surveys. And that's just, I, I just love that. And there's a type of research and seeking that is helpful, and there's a type of research and seeking that is dangerous. And if you want to research well, if we want to be the people who research and seek well, we have to be able to distinguish the difference between primary sources, secondary sources, and tertiary sources. All of us should befriend good books. I'm about to start a book. I'm the chew the meat, spit out the bones guy. I'm looking forward to a God-seeking man, Abraham Heschel, Jewish rabbi, activist. I'm excited. So we all should befriend good books, but we have to understand the difference between primary sources, secondary sources, and tertiary sources. Let me give you an example. Let's say you want to know how Mucci feels about Big Luther and Little Luther. Luther Vandross. And so Mucci, which one do you prefer? Do you have a preference for Big Luther or Little Luther? Primary source is asking me. Mucci, which do you prefer? Man, I prefer Big Luther. I prefer Luther with the sequence and the spotlights. A house is not a home. That's, my, that's me. I appreciate Little Luther, but I prefer Big Luther. Secondary source would be going to somebody I've had a conversation with and asking them, man, I wonder what Mucci thinks. So let me go ask his wife. Have you talked to Mucci about this? Does he prefer Big Luther or Little Luther? Oh, yeah, we were in a conversation about that. Actually, we stayed up to like 4 a.m. watching Luther Vandross videos. It was glorious. He prefers Big Luther. Tertiary source would be looking at my sermon prep playlist. I have that. And you'd be like, man, on your sermon prep playlist, I see some Hillsong. I see some Maverick City. I see some Kirk Franklin. Ooh, you got some Fred Hammond on there. You black, black. Man, I see Render and Pardon. Shout out to Render. I see some Maverick City. I see some Kendrick Lamar. I see some KB. I see some McClesso. Is that because he's a man or is that because you love? I see all of that. And when I finally get to Luther, I see little Luther, not big Luther. You need to make that make sense. So then you know what you do? You go to the primary source. Moochie, this is what I noticed. What's going on? And I'm like, ah, my playlist hasn't been updated. That's because I'm integrating. I switched over from Spotify back to Apple Music. And so not all the songs have transferred over. I prefer Big Luther. We want to know what God is like and what God is after. We go to him. We go to the primary source and we say, God, tell me about yourself. And yes, we pull in secondary sources, other people who have given time to it and who are operating from a position of health and honesty. 
not frustration and or fatigue. And then we go to tertiary sources, we look at experiences, and then we try to square it with what we've read and what God has said about himself. Does God get a say? Where you are right now, as you're examining different areas of your life, is God going to get a say? The gospel says is not only is he worth it, but he demands it to get a say. This subversive end. Verse 6, which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel, the good news is spreading, and they didn't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> they didn't have motorized vehicles. There was that this tremendous, now they were thoughtful, they had strategy, but this wasn't this well-oiled machine that shook the known world. It was just people loving each other well and acting as if God was true and believing that this message was worth receiving and applying to every area of their life. And it's bearing fruit in ways they can't even see. Praise God for that that God is working in ways we can't imagine and places we can't imagine producing more life, even when we can't see it. Praise him. That's next week. God wants to work through you. God is currently working in you. We got to partner with him. But for today, let's just rest in the beauty of the gospel. Pray with me. Um, <laughs> yeah, God. We all need the demonstrative power of God in our lives wherever we are. And it's easy to replace your power with my effort. Because I can measure that. I can, I can measure that. And I can be motivated by what I measure or discouraged by it. But as easy as it is, it is exhausting as all get out. But God, if what we have read is true, and that's what Paul, Paul, Paul says, this is the word of truth, the gospel, the good news regarding the person, claims, and work of Christ, if what we have read is true, then rest and freedom are always on the table, would we grab it? Oh, would we grab it? Would we grab the tremendous rest today? Please, would we be free? Would we be free? Would we be free? Because you're good. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.